It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. You all know what the big story is today, of course. No, not the debate. The actor strike is over. This has been going on since May. And finally, they have reached a deal. The studio's putting out a statement bragging about the biggest contract gains in the history of the uh, Actors Union, largest increase in minimum wage in 40 years, and on and on. Statement from SAG-AFTRA says the new deal is valued at more than $1 billion. Uh, Includes uh, pay increases, streaming, participation bonus, when you have streaming shows, um, increase in pensions, uh, protection from AI. And I always say this at the beginning of the strike, and now I will say it at the end. If they're able to reach this compromise, why does it take six friggin' months? Look how much money has been lost to both sides by having the actors out of commission and a lot of chosen movies shut down. It's just, you know, it's almost like they have to reach a point of desperation where you wonder if there's even going to be a a future for the business with unionized talent. Anyway, good news. But of course, it will take uh, probably till at least the beginning of next year for production to gear up for shows and streaming and all the other stuff you like. You know, this has gotten totally overshadowed by what's been an incredibly heavy news week, but remember when Russell Brand, the British um, comedian and actor, uh, was accused by four women who spoke to British outlets saying that he had either uh, sexually assaulted or harassed them? Well, now there's a new accuser. Interview with London Sunday Times. This new accuser called Jane Doe says in the lawsuit, that in the 2010 film Author, Brand first exposed himself to her in view of multiple members of the cast and crew before sexually assaulting her in a bathroom as a member of the production crew guarded the door from outside. If that is true, there should be other witnesses. He appeared intoxicated, was carrying a bottle of vodka on the set, and... She says, I felt used and abused. Disgusting is the only word. I felt like I was being used and I was just an object for his momentary titillation. I haven't seen a statement by Russell Brand on this. All right, let me get to last night's two-hour NBC debate. Story number one. First of all, the NBC moderators did a good job. Lester Holt, Kristen Welker, And then as part of the deal, they took Hugh Hewitt, well-known radio host and conservative commentator from the Salem Radio Network. And he did a good job too, I think. Some were like, oh, why are you having a conservative on? Because it's a Republican debate. Now, my own take was this. A lot of focus on foreign policy. All five candidates, yes, it's down to five, Well, let me amend that. Four out of the five candidates did very well. There's one exception who I'm going to go off on in a minute. 
Um, kind of dull at times. You know, the truth is, these candidates, particularly the four, not including Vivek Ramaswamy, there, I gave it away. They don't disagree on that much. With the notable exception of funding for Ukraine, where Ron DeSantis was calling it a ridiculous use of taxpayers' money, um, you know, it's they only agree disagree sort of at the margins. And that's why I think the debate was not all that exciting. But there's another thing that made the debate not all that exciting. And that is, with Donald Trump not there, of course, he's blowing off all the debates, he was barely mentioned. So it was kind of surreal. You know, you got the guy who's out front by at least 30 points or more, who was holding a rally last night about 11 miles away in Florida. The debate was in Miami. And, you know, he's barely talked about. Now, Lester Holt's first question was, you know, pretty straightforward and stark. Why you and not Donald Trump? Really, only three of the candidates used the opportunity to say anything about Trump. And they all had their sort of first question speech prepared. Oh, this country is facing, you know, a terrible economy, the border, ongoing wars. You know, they all did some version of that. Now, Chris Christie, of course, you expect, said, you know, that uh, Trump is going to, starting in March, shortly before or shortly after, I forget, Super Tuesday, he's going to be in a courtroom for a long time. And we can't nominate somebody who's going to spend the next year and a half dealing with indictments. Uh, Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley, both of whom I thought turned in the strongest performances, they took a couple of jabs at Trump. Nothing they haven't really said before. I'll get to it in a minute. And then, you know, it was off to talking about a whole bunch of other things. And so there is just, just sort of how shall I put it? It almost seems like a race for second place. Now, maybe Nikki Haley, who a lot of people thought won that debate, is going to catch fire. Maybe DeSantis is right. And Trump can't win a general election. But the only problem with that argument is that these recent polls, New York Times, CNN, that I've been talking about, show that he's ahead of President Biden. A long time to go, of course, before the election. So, ultimately, the debate doesn't move the needle very much. I think it will result in another round of positive publicity for Nikki Haley. And she did have a very good night. She was feisty. She drew the most attacks, I would say, since she is seen as the candidate who's rising and she threw a couple punches herself going on offense. DeSantis is very um, disciplined, controlled, punchy, makes, he's gotten better as a debater. 
makes his points. You know where he stands. But he seems to just not be in the business of throwing punches at other candidates. Unless he's attacked first, and then he will, as he was at one point by Nikki Haley, they got into this sort of, you know, to the average view or obscure argument about as governor, when she was governor of South Carolina, he, of course, is the governor of Florida, um, who did more to try to do trade with China, and, of course, given the extremely adversarial nature uh, of China now toward the U.S., that would be seen as a liability. So I just think it's one of these debates that's going to kind of be forgotten in a day or two. I really don't think it was anything approaching a game changer, except, you know, the media always needs to glob on to somebody who's then the front runner. And you'd say it's Nikki Haley, except, of course, Trump is the real front runner. And in, and in a way, it seems like a battle for second place. So... New York Times was sort of with me on this, but the Washington Post was not, as I'll get to in mere moments. It was the undercard that underwhelmed. Pretty good lead. Only takes six words. <laughs> um, third straight debate skipped by Trump. Critical ch- and shrinking chance for his rivals to close his chasm of a polling advantage. And yet they had precious little to say about Trump. And it's only now, a bit more than two months before the Iowa caucuses. DeSantis mostly left Trump untouched, happy to prosecute his own case and push back on rivals like Haley, with little traction gained. I mean, you would think that the Sands campaign would know by now that the way you, you get the viral soundbite, the way you get the headline is by going after somebody else on the stage. Look, he's entitled to run the campaign he thinks is best. I think he had a good night. But interesting phrase there, little traction gain. The five contenders were left to tear one another down with varying levels of nastiness. I have a column on this uh, today on Fox. You can get more on my take. But now we get to the Washington Post account. And I think the Post, and I probably have done this in my career, you know, it's a two-hour debate. So if you take out, if you focus on, I should say, a few words here and there, you can make it sound more exciting than it is and more combative than it is. Former President Donald Trump's top Republican rivals attacked him in the third GOP debate as a political loser, a changed man, and a distracted leader who failed to implement his top policy goals as president. And they used a harsher tone. Uh, I must have been watching a different debate because it wasn't especially harsh. The criticism was basically things they've said before. And as I just told you, after that first question from Holt, they went on. And Trump barely came up again. Okay, so what did they say? DeSantis. Donald Trump is a lot different guy than he was in 2016. He says Republicans were to get tired of winning. Well, we saw last night, meaning the uh, off-year elections, 
I'm sick of Republicans losing. Nikki Haley. He used to be right on Ukraine and foreign issues. Now he's getting weak in the knees and trying to be friendly again. We can't live in the past. Okay, is that really harsh? He's got to say something. And Chris Christie said anybody who's going to be spending the next year the half of their life focusing on keeping themselves out of jail and courtrooms cannot lead this party or this country. Okay, Politico. This debate felt removed from the reality that the Republican primary field has yet to make a successful case for dumping Trump. Biggest winner was still Haley. She managed to articulate her policy positions, defend her record, and deliver headline-making lines. And then there was Ramaswamy. There's a reason his negatives keep spiking, says Politico. So Ramaswamy, and you look, I give him credit. He's one of the last five people standing on the stage, but he's, he's his own worst enemy. He comes out and attacks Ukraine, saying it's not a paragon of democracy, and saying that President Zelensky without using his name, but he said, you know, a sitcom actor in cargo pants and a comedian, because that's what Volodymyr Zelensky was before he got into politics and was elected president. Is a Nazi. Which is utterly absurd. The guy is Jewish. And Nikki Haley took that opening and said that the leaders of Russia and China, Putin and Xi, are salivating at the idea of Ramaswamy becoming president. Then there was an NBC question on TikTok. Owned by China, as you know, Trump tried to ban it, was blocked by the courts. What would you do about TikTok? And when Ramaswamy was asked about why he also wants to ban it, but he's on it now for his campaign, he turns to Nikki Haley and says, well, your daughter has been on it. And she called him scum and said, leave my daughter out of your voice. And that was the moment. And it was a stupid thing. You don't go after somebody's kid. I'm sorry. That was a miscalculation or maybe it was very calculated. And it backfired. It absolutely backfired. Now, there were times when Nikki Haley also went on offense. She slammed Ron DeSantis for the liberal approach of having opposed fracking and then later supposedly allegedly claiming he didn't he responded that you can't get the shale oil without fracking um and then there was abortion they gave their standard answers uh haley said look i'm unapologetically pro-life but i don't judge anybody who's pro-choice we have to stop using this issue to divide the country and You know, essentially, there's going to have to be, it's up to the states and there's going to have to be compromises. DeSantis also took a strongly pro-life stance, but didn't mention that he had enacted a six-week ban in Florida. I mean, at one time, it was one of his calling cards, and now he hardly ever talks about it. And even when asked about abortion, he didn't talk about it. Perhaps very mindful of what happened in Ohio and other states, where referenda 
upholding a woman's right to choose were passed. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. The world of business moves fast. Stay on top of it with the Fox Business Rundown every Monday and Friday. Listen to the Fox Business Rundown starting May 20th at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Oh, one more thing on the debate. He has repeatedly given vague answers about being in a relationship with a woman. But after the debate was over, Tim Scott, who I thought was kind of a non-factor last night, um, the senator appearing with a long-haired blonde woman in a gray pantsuit, his girlfriend, and they posed for photos. She was identified as Mindy Noche, or Noche, uh, design manager for a real estate company in Charleston. And Tim Scott saying they've been seeing each other for about a year or so. Number two, the pundits and prognosticators are still hashing over the Democrats' big night on Tuesday night because that's what pundits do. And in the second day stories, I'm finding more of an emphasis of what I tried to say to you on this podcast yesterday, which is, sure, good news for the Democrats. Um, any referendum on abortion, the pro-choice side is now 7-0, and zero victories for the pro-life side. And despite the fact that, you know, Glenn Youngkin, the governor of Virginia, lost control of both houses of his legislature, so let's cut out the already fanciful chatter about he's going to run for president. And the Democratic governor of Kentucky, red state Kentucky, was reelected with a much healthier margin than his... um, win four years ago. That that doesn't mean that Joe Biden doesn't remain quite unpopular. And here's the New York Times. Tuesday's results don't change the picture for President Biden heading into 2024. The surveys show millions of voters who dislike Biden but remain receptive to other Democrats and support liberal causes. The polls also show Democrats with particular strength among the most highly engaged voters who dominate low turnout elections, like on Tuesday. While Trump shows his greatest strength among less engaged voters who turn out only every four years in presidential races. So the same data showing Biden in jeopardy is entirely consistent, says the paper, with Democratic strength in the off-year election. It doesn't mean Biden's political position is secure. If anything, his weakness among even these voters reveals the extension of his liabilities. Okay, Dan Balls in the Washington Post. Eight years of Donald Trump's chaotic leadership, a House Republican conference in turmoil, and one very big Supreme Court decision on abortion rights have combined to produce untold damage to the Republican Party, a reality that hit home 
with special force on Tuesday. Voters delivered very few bright spots for Republicans, writes Dan. Once again, Democrats outperformed expectations as they did in the midterms. It reinforced worries among some Republicans that their brand has become too toxic to many voters and that whatever weaknesses they see in President Biden, their own problems are acute. Biden's brand is clearly suffering, and many Democrats are worried about that, so he too gets around to it. Democrats have fissures within their coalition. The world's unstable, events are unpredictable. But the results showed again Democrats have found the ingredients to produce victories, despite their own weaknesses. They raised more money. They outspent their opponents on advertising, especially two-to-one on the Ohio abortion referendum. They've seized on two issues, abortion and Republican extremism, to put Republicans on the defensive. Now, here's some reaction for the pro-life side in National Review, editorial by the magazine. The adversaries and false friends of the pro-life movement will undoubtedly use this loss to try to convince pro-lifers that their cause is politically toxic, that same word. Since the Dobbs decision, pro-life candidates, who are mainstream Republicans, have fared well in general elections. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine, for example, signed a bill banning most abortions later than six weeks of pregnancy, same as DeSantis in Florida, but, and when a baby's heartbeat is detectable. And he won re-election by 26 points in a state that Trump carried by eight points two years earlier. So, National Review goes on to say the task of the pro-life was complicated by the fact that the referendum covered multiple different topics, some of them only marginally related to abortion, such as contraception, fertility treatment, and miscarriage care. Also, general elections rarely serve as single-issue referenda. Pro-life laws will, however, be threatened in 2024 in several more states. Pro-lifers will fight to protect those laws everywhere, but should focus on the states where they have the greatest likelihood of success. So, you know, everybody gets to celebrate when we're on the winning side, and obviously, the reversal of Roe v. Wade was the culmination of a 50-year goal by people who identify as pro-lifers. But now, at least in the states where it's been tested so far, and as National View notes, the pro-life movement is 0 for 7. All right, story number three. Let's go to the war. The Secretary of State giving a little uh, speech about the need for sustained peace once the Middle East war is over. Tony Blinken saying these must include Palestinian people's voices and aspirations at the center of the post-crisis governance in Gaza. Must include Palestinian-led governance and Gaza unified with the West Bank under the Palestinian Authority. Now, you could sort of sense that this is where the Biden administration has been going. But the question is, is this pie in the sky? Is this elusive? Does the Palestinian Authority have any chance 
of successfully ruling Gaza as well as the West Bank, which, of course, is occupied by Israelis. In fact, I saw just today there were 700,000 Israeli settlers in the West Bank, and that was part of a long, decades-long process by the various Israeli governments, but particularly Netanyahu, to make sure that both Israelis and Arabs lived in the West Bank. So, but as the New York Times points out, renewing a call for what is essence a far-off two-state solution, um, American officials have not explained how they would get this done. I mean, you've got Gaza, devastated by Israeli airstrikes, after Hamas lost the atro- launched the atrocities that began this bloody war now one month old. The U.S. has warned Israel against occupying Gaza as it once did, but acknowledges that Israeli forces are going to remain there for some period of time, as Bibi has said explicitly. And the Palestinian Authority, well means that the leader would be 87-year-old Mahmoud Abbas. He's unpopular. Many Palestinians view him as corrupt and say his attempts to win independence through peace talks have failed. So I don't know where this will end up. It's hard to know what the Palestinians who live in Gaza actually want. Some of them clearly support Hamas. And then the New York Times repeats this, you know, where 10,000 people have been reported killed, you know, by the Gaza Health Ministry. I'm not saying there have not been a lot of people who have been killed in Gaza. And many of them are civilians. And it's just as much of a tragedy. But who started this war? Who thought it was a good idea to kill elderly people and children and babies? What did... Hamas expect with that kind of brutal attack, knowing the strength of the Israeli military machine. Nevertheless, some people have been shocked at what Israel's had to do, though I do have to point out, and we now know that Hamas does use the basements of hospitals and a wing of UN schools for children for places where they are headquartered. There's video that the Israelis have released in the case of one UN school. So it's all fine and good to talk about what will happen in Gaza when the war ends, but I don't see this war ending anytime soon. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Number four, Ivanka Trump testifying yesterday at the civil fraud trial in New York. She is not a defendant. She was removed from the case, but she obviously, along with Eric and Don Jr., was one of the people with a lot of influence in the Trump organization. Now, and how many times did I see uh, the cable networks playing her entrance? So, it's no secret that after 2020, both Ivanka and her husband, Jared, tried to distance themselves from not just the company, but the mounting legal problems of 
Ivanka's father. Now, like her brothers, she said she was not involved in the annual financial statements, didn't know about which valuations it took into account. But she did play a key role in setting up some of the company's relationships with financial institutions such as Deutsche Bank. And she was asked about the loan terms that she got. One email showed Ivanka telling a colleague in 2011 that the favorable terms of the deal would only be possible if it were backed by a guarantee about uh, a guarantee linked to Donald Trump's net worth. And that's what part of what the prosecution is claiming. This is what allowed Trump's company to obtain favorable terms from lenders. The judge lost his patience, the Times reports, in telling Trump lawyer Christopher Keis that he does not appreciate the frequent insinuations that he is biased against the Trump legal team. Keis keeps saying, hey, you rule in favor of uh, the state attorney general much more than our side. Here's Judge Engeron. You could try to surmise that's because of bias, or you could try to understand that I think their objections have been of greater validity than yours. She was also asked about the uh, old post office, magnificent building here in D.C. that was bought by the Trump company, renovated. And at the time, she was like the brothers. She says, we envisioned and went on to execute, redeveloping it into a super luxury hotel. Well, it was a very nice hotel that I had to visit many times because people held book parties there. And if you wanted to talk to Trump people, they were often there. But ultimately, the Trump organization had to sell that building, which is about six or seven blocks from the White House, at a loss. Okay, number five. Jim Comer, the congressman who leads the House Oversight Committee, issuing subpoenas for Hunter Biden and James Biden, requesting that the president's son and brother appear as part of the committee's investigation. Now, Comer has raised questions about this 2018 personal check that Joe Biden got from his brother James for $200,000. The Biden team says that was repayment of a loan that he had given to Jim. Um, but Comer's not buying it. And he thinks, you know, was this money laundering from Chinese sources designed to conceal the source, he has said, and how much money they got from uh, foreign nationals and companies. Now, just before the subpoenas were issued, Hunter Biden's lawyer, Abby Lowell, sent a letter to the speaker saying this committee is acting in bad faith. It's a 12-page letter. Um, we urge you to use your newly minted leadership post responsibly before joining this spectacle. Uh, he, the letter goes on to say, you should consider the numerous lies, falsehoods, and fabricated illustrations by your chamber's chairman in the course of peddling baseless allegations of misconduct by our client or his family 
that will now form the basis for them abusing their power with improper demands for records and testimony. So basically, this is, was kind of a preemptive strike by Hunter Biden's lawyer, probably knowing the subpoenas were about to drop and, you know, undoubtedly issuing this lawyer for public, uh, excuse me, this letter for public consumption and saying to Mike Johnson, like, don't get your hands dirty with this because there's nothing there. It's crap. It's garbage. Nevertheless, there it is, you know, I mean, whether or not you think this rises to the level of an impeachment inquiry against the president of the United States, you know, we all know that Hunter Biden is under criminal investigation. We all know that Hunter Biden lied uh, about his use of drugs to buy a gun, which he later gave back. We all know about the tax charges. And some of these transactions, and, you know, they found this check to, to, wasn't president then, but to Joe Biden, bear scrutiny. And if the tables were turned, the Democrats would be investigating um, the relative of a Republican president who had such transactions in the past. But here we have Hunter's lawyer saying, there's nothing there abuse of power, and so on. Now, they're supposed to testify in the middle of December. The real question is, will they show up? Will they testify? Will they fight the subpoena in court? And how long will this drag on? Hopefully this podcast has not dragged on, that you've just been paying rapt attention every moment. But whatever your level of attention, I appreciate it. Back here tomorrow with more BuzzMeter. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts, and Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. The world of business moves fast. Stay on top of it with the Fox Business Rundown every Monday and Friday. Listen to the Fox Business Rundown starting May 20th at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts.